Please pray with me. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are indeed our blood and our righteousness. Again, we're so grateful for your incredible love for us. And now, Lord, as we look into your word, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. How many of you here this morning are country music fans? Anybody? Oh, there's a hand or two. What do you know? Cool. Country music fans. There's a few more in this service than in the early service. I don't know. You guys, I don't know if that means anything or not. Well, there's an old song by Vince Gill that goes like this. I've been cheated, been mistreated. When will I be loved? I've been put down, I've been pushed round. When will I be loved? You know, I heard that song not too long ago, and I remember thinking at the time that that the words of this song would probably resonate with millions of people all over the world. If they heard that song, they would probably say, yeah, that's me. Probably most of us here this morning, at some time or another, have felt that kind of a, uh, <clears throat> that, uh, we can identify with that on some level, uh, however big or small, uh, we can identify with, with the songwriter there. And, the, and that question that's asked reflects one of, the most, one of the most basic and fundamental longings of the human heart. When will I be loved? One of the deepest human needs that we all have is the need to be loved. To be deeply loved and accepted just as we are. Mother Teresa once said, There is much suffering in the world, and the material suffering is suffering from hunger, suffering from homelessness, from all kinds of disease. But I still think that the greatest suffering is being lonely, feeling unloved. We all long to be loved and accepted. We, our, our hearts cry out for the safety and the refuge of belonging. <clears throat> I'm reminded of another pop culture song, a song by Waylon Jennings from several years ago. I was looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces, Too often that's our experience as well, I think. We look for love in all the wrong places. Experience tells us that human love will fail us. Loss, rejection, abandonment, betrayal. These uh, these are themes that play out every day all over the world in individual lives like yours and mine. A wife comes home to find a note on the refrigerator. I want a divorce. A mom rages at her young daughter, telling her she'll never amount to anything. A close, lifelong friend suddenly decides to cut off and abandon the friendship. A well-raised young adult turns his back on his parents and and refuses to have anything to do with them. These are things that happen. Perhaps they've happened to to some of you. Uh, Two true accounts that I, I recently read An eight-year-old girl was forced by her mom to go to school 
with a note pinned to her jacket. I'm a stupid girl. Wow. And a young special needs boy was told by his father, I'm leaving because I can't deal with having a son like you. When will I be loved? That's the the heart cry for every person that that uh, that has experienced loss and betrayal and 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 uh, the the failure of human love. You see, human love will always will always fail us eventually. Maybe not in major or traumatic ways like some of these examples, but the fact of the matter is, human love is broken love because human beings are broken. Uh, Human love is incapable of meeting our heart's deepest longings. But you know, the very good news that we all need to hear over and over and over again until it sinks into the deepest fibers of our beings is simply the good news that God loves us. God loves us. God loves us. No matter who we are, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, God's love will never fail. That's been the theme of kind of the, the, last, three, uh, the last two Sundays and this morning as well. It's the, it's the essence of the message uh, from Romans 8, uh, particularly this morning. Today is the last in a three-week series of messages from this, this great chapter. Two weeks ago, we looked at God's love for us and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Through the indwelling presence of the Spirit in our lives, we have freedom from sin's condemnation. Uh, we can be free from sin's control, and uh, we have the assurance of our adoption as God's beloved children. <clears throat> Last week, we saw God's love for us and his provisions and preparations uh, for our redemption. We have hope in the midst of our present suffering because we know that in all things God is working for our good if we love him and have been called according to his purpose. And he is preparing us for the day when our adoption as his children will be completed when Christ returns. In the meantime, we have the Holy Spirit who is, uh, who is working, helping us in our weakness. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us uh, and pleads our cause before the Father. And so we come to our passage for today, the last section of this great chapter. And here Paul looks back at, at God's amazing love for us. He looks back at the section immediately preceding, and he looks back at all of Romans 8, and he actually looks back at the whole book of Romans. And, and uh, throughout the book of Romans, he's traced the, the downward spiral of sin and our futile attempts to, to justify ourselves and save ourselves. And he looks at God's great gift of grace that reconciles us and transforms us in anticipation of the glory that is to come. And looking back on all of this, Paul asks in verse 31, what then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? The if in this question might almost just as well be translated since, Because in the Greek, the word used here uh, sort of automatically expects a positive response. So what Paul is essentially saying here is, what can we say? The evidence that God loves us so uh, deeply is so abundant, it's almost overwhelming. If God himself is so clearly for us, 
reaching out to us, helping us, interceding for us, who can possibly be against us? Now, Paul isn't at all saying that, uh, that there aren't things against us in this life. We all know very well from our own experiences that, that that's simply not true. There are things in this life that are against us. Earthly frustrations and sickness and illness, uh, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, our own sinful nature, all of those things work against us. No, what, what Paul is saying here ultimately is if God is for us, who can possibly stand against us and defeat us? Who can overcome and destroy us? Satan, world, flesh, do your worst, but you will not prevail because God is with us and God is for us. That's good news. Paul then goes on in verse 32 to explain just how deeply committed God is to us. He says, He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us Will he not with him also give us everything else? God's love for us is not a wishy-washy, sentimental kind of love. It's deeply sacrificial love. And it cost him dearly to love us. Yet he did so, and he does so. And if that's the case... Why do we still think that God will give up on us or let us go so easily? Ponder this with me for a moment. Romans 5.8 tells us that God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if Jesus went to the cross for us and died for us before he even knew us, while we were still living in sin... Do we think he's going to quickly and easily give up on us? We tend to be cynical and guarded when it comes to love. We've been cheated, been mistreated. Other people have let us down and failed us and and we've gotten burned. And so, so we're not going to invest too much of ourselves in loving someone else unless, unless we see some pretty positive returns on our initial investment in them. The problem is, we tend to project our own pride and our own cynicism onto God, assuming that he, he is like us. So we assume that there's, there's only so much that we can take. I mean, there's only so much that, that God can take before he gives up on us, before he writes us off as a lost cause. But listen, God in Christ is not cynical or guarded about us. Jesus loves us, believes in us, and has such high hopes for relationships with us. He's seriously seeking to be reconciled to us, and he pursues us with reckless abandon. God is so hungry for relationship with us that he willingly gave us his own son, And Jesus is so hungry for a relationship with us that he willingly gave his own life away for our sake and on our behalf. That's pretty amazing when we really stop to think about that. There's an old saying with several variations that goes something like this. You hit me once, it's your fault. You hit me twice, it's my fault. Fool me once, shame on you. 
fool me twice, shame on me. In other words, if I let you get the better of me once, well, that, those kinds of things sometimes happen. But no one is going to get the better of me twice. No way. I am on my guard, and, and you're going to have to prove yourself trustworthy before I'm going to open up and let you possibly hurt me again. And if I somehow let you hurt me, then, then I'm the one who's the, the problem here. That's how we tend to think. But that's not how God thinks. That's not what God is like. God is the essence of humility. Listen, God was willing to make a fool of himself by human standards, by worldly standards. He was willing to make a fool of himself for our sake. And he's constantly reaching out to us over and over and over again. And even though we're the ones who break the relationship, we're the ones who reject him. He never rejects us. He still pursues us and he still forgives us and he still rejoices when we take him back. If God were proud or cynical, he wouldn't have any of us. We would all be in a world of trouble. But God is neither proud nor cynical. He is simply love. And he has always been willing to make a fool of himself by worldly standards in order to demonstrate his love to you and to me. Picture that always comes to mind for me when I think of the depth of God's love is the, the picture of the father and the story of the prodigal son. You know the story. You know it pretty well. The son has deeply wounded the father, rejecting him and choosing to cut off the relationship and, and go his own way. But day after day, the father waits by the gate, looking longingly for his son to come home. And when he finally saw him, a long way off in the distance, he hiked up his robes and he ran to him and he threw his arms around him and hugged him and he kissed him. And then he threw a party for him because his lost son had finally come home. That's what God's love is like for everyone, believers and unbelievers alike. God loves each one of us, no matter who we are, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done. And this passage today tells us that for those who are in Christ Jesus, nothing can stand in the way of his victory in our lives. Nothing can ultimately separate us from his love. And so what can we say? If God is for us, who is against us? God gave his own son for us. He will not quickly let us go. Now some may say, ah, yes, but you don't know what I've done. You don't have any idea the hurt and pain I've caused. You don't know the depth of my sin. Well, Paul anticipates objections. And in the following verses, he addresses uh, two of the areas most likely to trip us up and, and cause us to doubt God's love for us. Condemnation and separation. See, Genesis tells us that God created humans in his image and, and likeness and that he enjoyed direct, intimate fellowship with them. But Adam and Eve's disobedience resulted in alienation from God. And that alienation is characterized by guilt. They, they realized that they were naked. 
and they were ashamed. And it was characterized by separation. The Lord banished them from the garden. And we see that most of the first eight chapters of Romans are about God's grace and provision for reconciling and restoring the descendants of Adam, us, to himself. And now here in verses 34, uh, 33 and 34, Paul addresses this matter of, of condemnation. He asks, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now this sounds like a legal challenge, a case being tried in a court of law where the Christian stands to be judged. Who's going to step forward and press charges? Who's going to prosecute the case? And Paul is basically saying in in this passage and, and in the book as a whole, Satan can't. His law of sin and death has has been nullified by the law of the spirit of life. Other humans can't. They have all fallen short of the glory of God and and stand equally condemned before the righteous judge. Christ as the perfect human could, but he won't because he has died and uh, he has died for us and he is now our advocate and our mediator. And God himself It is God who justifies out of his mercy and his love for us. And so ultimately what Paul is saying is there are no accusations. And hearing no accusations, case dismissed. William Barclay compares Paul's statement in verse 34 to one of the very early Christian creeds, the Apostles' Creed. He notes that Paul is saying four things about Jesus here in verse 34. He died, he was raised, he is at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. And then he notes that three of these things are the same in the creed, but the fourth is different. The creed says he was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He sitteth on the right hand of God. And notice the fourth thing, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And so in, in, in the Apostles' Creed, Christ is the judge who will come to judge the quick and the dead. In Paul's passage here, Christ is sitting at the right hand of God interceding for us. So Christ, the judge, is our intercessor. The one to whom we must all ultimately give an account is interceding for us. He's our defense counsel. He's the one pleading our case. If God is for us, who is against us? Who will bring any charges against those whom God has chosen? Paul's answer is very clear. No one can condemn those who are in Christ Jesus. No wonder Charles Wesley could open his great hymn text with the words, Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears, and close with, With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul then moves on in verses 35 to 39 to address the matter of separation. He asks in verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? 
in verses 35 to 37, he strongly declares that, that no earthly problems, hardship, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. And let's face it, those are some pretty serious earthly problems. And Paul is declaring that, that none of those things can separate us from God, God's love for us. Nothing in all creation uh, he goes on in verses 38 and 39 to declare that, that uh, no heavenly powers, death, life, angels, demons, present, future, height, depth, none of those things, no heavenly powers can separate us from God's love for us. Nothing in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what can we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? God loves each one of us, no matter who we are, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done. Now, does this mean that we have no choice about our relationship with God? Many believe that this, this passage teaches that we are eternally secure, that, that once a person has received Christ, nothing, not even that person, is able to do anything to reverse God's purposes. Well, this is one of those things that theologians have been debating for centuries, and certainly my thoughts this morning are not going to end that debate. <clears throat> but let me just say that, that I personally don't think that the context of Romans 8 or the book of Romans as a whole supports this view. Paul's focus in this letter has been on the damaging effects of sin and the freedom from bondage that we can have in Christ. Uh, he strongly emphasizes that apart from God's action in Christ on our behalf, none of us could be saved. Salvation is a free gift from God, and he is the one who accomplishes it. But Paul also indicates that our response of faith and our willingness to be led by the Spirit are essential parts of receiving God's free gift of salvation. And all through his writings, Paul strongly warns and encourages the believers to remain faithful, to persevere in their faith. Ben Witherington, a professor of theology at Asbury Seminary, puts it this way. He says, for Paul, there are three tenses to salvation. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I shall be saved. In the latter two, at least, he has a necessary and important part to play. He must work out what God works in. So salvation is a free gift from God. We can do nothing to earn it or to achieve it. We must simply receive it with gratitude. But we also have a responsibility, according to Paul, to put to death our sinful nature and to keep in step with the Spirit, as he says. And elsewhere in his writings, he, he says <clears throat> that, we, that we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And so there's a sense in which we do have a responsibility to work out the salvation that God has freely given to us and to keep in step with the Spirit. The bottom line this morning is this. Christ will not easily let us go. There is 
staying power to God's grace. We are secure in him and we can rest assured of his deep love for us. As one pastor put it, if sin is huge, then grace is huger. If sin is powerful, grace is more powerful. If alienation runs deep, grace runs deeper. If hate is strong, grace is stronger. I can't prove this, but time and time again, I have seen it to be true that there is much more grace in God than there is sin in us. There is nothing that any of us can do to make God love us more. There's nothing that any of us can do to make God love us less. We can't manipulate God. He won't pay more attention to us if we figure out how to become his favorite child. We so often assume that, that God's love must be tied to, to something, to our performance, to our sacrifices, or at least to our love for him. But scripture is rather clear that, that God's love for us is rooted in his own merciful nature. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? We are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what should our response be to this amazingly good news? Well, let me just quickly suggest two simple things. First, our response should be a response of gratitude and worship. This should make our hearts cry out with joy and praise because God has done great things for us. And secondly, our response should be to rest, to let go. This assurance of God's love should enable us to stop striving. This assurance can, can free us to simply be who we are in Christ rather than constantly striving to become who we think we ought to be. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know your heart. I don't know all of your fears, your struggles, your insecurities. I don't know how often or to what extent you've been let down, burned, or, or failed by other people. I don't know how deep your cynicism runs this morning. But hear the good news one more time and just let it wash over you. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. Human love is broken because human beings are broken. But God's love will never fail you. His love for us is deep and immense. He is our strong and sure salvation. Because God has given us his spirit, we can be free from sin's condemnation and sin's control. We can be assured of our adoption as his beloved children. We know that God is working good for us in all things in our lives, redeeming our suffering and preparing us for glory by conforming us to the image of his Son. Meanwhile, the indwelling Holy Spirit within us is interceding for us. And Christ is at the right hand of God interceding for us.
No powers on heaven or on earth can separate us from God's love for us in Christ Jesus. John Newton's hymn sums it up well. His love in time past forbids me to think he'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. Each sweet Ebenezer I have in review confirms his good pleasure to help me quite through. Since all that I meet shall work for my good, the bitter is sweet, the medicine food. Though painful at present, twill cease before long, and then, oh, how pleasant the conqueror's song. When will I be loved? God loves you. Nothing in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what can we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for this great and simple but profound truth that you love us. Lord, we hear it so often and it in many ways has become so commonplace that we don't really take time to stop and ponder what that means. Lord, you know each one of our hearts here this morning You know the burdens, the concerns. You know the hurts. You know the pain. You know the cynicism, the guardedness of our hearts. I pray for each one of us, Father, that you would enable us through the power of your Holy Spirit to open up our hearts and our lives to your amazing love and that you would give us grace to ponder this very simple yet very deep truth that you love us. For all of these things, we'll give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.